Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Petty Politics, bringing you the petty. And the political, as always. As always. You should have known that. But more so the petty, per usual. Look, it's the third episode, <laughs> all right? We feel very confident. Yeah, we're confident now, guys. We feel like we know what we're doing. We feel like we know what we're talking about, you finally. Know. No, I, sometimes I don't. You know, we're, still, we're still growing, right? We're, we're, we're trying our best. We're growing. We're still taking suggestions. Hi, it's Cam. Hi, it's Bree. And welcome back. We have a lot of stuff to talk about today. We really do. And not even a lot of time, honestly, to thoroughly address all of these issues. Truly, truly. I feel like immediately after we left the studio last week, stuff was already coming out. CNN was putting out breaking news left and right. Exactly. Um, And so we do have things to talk about on a serious note, um, but we also want to try to keep it um, entertaining and light, too. So we want to make sure that we balance both of those things. So we're going to start off with the life and the law segment first. We're going to be talking a little bit about 3L life, some of the things we've learned in our time here. Okay, so for the political, we're talking about education. We're talking about Betsy DeVos and her visit at Harvard. We're also talking about gun control and particularly its relevance to the Las Vegas shooting. I think that it's a very touchy subject, and I think that it's very important that we get this out. So we really want to make sure that we hold space for people, that we can have a very honest conversation mm-hmm. about Just how— necessary dialogue about gun control legislation. Right, about how the country can move forward. Um, in the petty, we're going to be talking a little bit about O.J., getting released in the dead of night. <laughs> Why'd you stop that? <laughs> in the dead of night. In the dead of night. In the dead of night. We're going to talk about Tom Price and a few other governmental affairs Tom that are happening. Mm-hmm. We're also going to talk about Amber Rose and the newest iteration of the slut walk. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, you know, what it means exactly to have a slut walk. What does it mean to try to return, uh, re- what does it mean to reclaim that term and actually use it in benefit for a feminist cause? We're also going to be talking a little bit. I mean, bit... if we can, if we can, right. can you even reclaim that term? Good question. Good question. We're also going to be talking about the newlywed Milo Yiannopoulos. Do you guys know who he is? Um, well, I'll, I'm going to save <laughs> that part for the petty, but let's get started. That's definitely petty. Let's get started. All right, let's get started with the life and the law segment. So last week we talked a lot about things that we've been experiencing and things that we want to provide to prospective law students, folks that are interested in potentially going to law school, having a career in the law. We want to talk now about some of the things that we've learned in our time here. So mm-hmm. We're currently in our third year, uh, you know, really trying to soak in the knowledge that we've obtained so far. Exactly. And it's really interesting because I now feel that I can be reflective. I don't think I was able to be, you know, as introspective about my experiences this past year or even 1L mm-hmm. year. But now that I'm at 3L, I do feel a lot more empowered to look back and think about things that I could have done differently, that I could That's have done really well. Yeah. How do, I mean, do you feel the same way too? I mean, I felt like I always could be reflective because I felt like every single semester or term I was growing a bit more. So yeah. I definitely had things that I would have done differently 1L had I gone back with the same lessons I'd known during 2L. Mm. And the same for now. I mean, but my issue is not that I didn't feel like I could be reflective. My issue is more so that I feel as though I'm not ready to finish learning. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a constant growing and maturing experience being in law school. And I think that not just during the curriculum, I think that during the time outside, more so in social activism groups and even doing so- things like this, like petty politics, I'm learning so much yeah. that I'm just not 
done dedicating the amount of time I have to learning about these issues and then participating actively in changing them as I'm going to have when I graduate. Gotcha. Gotcha. What are some of the things you feel like you would be telling your 1L self now? Uh, Read. (laughs) (laughs) Read your casebook. (laughs) Do your reading maybe once or twice. True. True. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, no, for, literally. Take it more seriously. Read. Uh, do what you're supposed to be doing. One thing about me, I feel like maybe even take a couple of years off. That's an interesting concept because wow. what, yeah, my family was saying, don't take a couple of years off. Go straight through. Become a lawyer by the age of 24, 25, whatever, and do your best. But the thing is, I feel as though when I came straight through, I was not emotionally, mentally or just, just I was just not prepared, right. even intellectually, to deal with a lot of the things that I've dealt with or to confront a lot of the things I've confronted being a black woman at Harvard Law mm. at the age of 21. Yeah. And so I feel like taking a couple of years off would have allowed me the time to mature and to grow and to come in and take it seriously. During my first semester of 1L, I did not do the best. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I definitely had a turnaround, but that came with me. I didn't know how to take a law school exam. Just basic concepts like that. Right. And I feel like a lot of the individuals here have had access to resources that have prepared them for being a law student their whole lives. And then they've taken years off. They've worked in mm-hmm. in real careers, you know. Yeah. I knew someone in my 1L section that had been a journalist abroad, like a real journalist. Yeah. Someone who worked in the House of Representatives and such, you know. And so they have this time to prepare them. But I feel like I didn't have time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I still don't really know what I want to do with my law degree. So it all, it just... I feel like definitely taking time off, knowing who I am, and also networking. I came in not caring to make friends. Like, I already had been through the undergraduate experience. I'd already met all of the people that I knew that I was going to be close with the rest of my life. I didn't feel as though this was a place for me to have to be in everyone's face. But I think that it's not only networking when you get to law school. It's politics. Like, you Mm. definitely want to be at every event and such. And literally during my 1L year, I was like, oh, no, I'm not not going nowhere. (laughs) I didn't talk to anyone. (laughs) I mean, would you tell yourself, your 1L self, to go to more social events then? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, not only more social, but more professional, more professional development Mm. events, more business events, you know? I would have definitely told myself to even go to more of the academic events. We have a lot of speaking engagements and such, and I just did not want to include myself. I felt like I knew what I needed to know. I needed to study for exams, and that was the scope of my law school career. I didn't care to introduce all of these other aspects, which are equally as important. I think that Harvard in itself is for networking. You're supposed to expose yourself to your network and use that in order to climb the career path that you want to be in because you definitely will have people to help you. And so I am now more open to help. I have a lot more friends. I'm able to go out and be social. I make time to be an activist as well as a student. And B, Mm. yeah, I can be other things than just be a student. That makes sense. You know, I I think I definitely share the idea in terms of feeling like I wasn't going to be really prepared for the experience as a 1L. Mm -hmm. My difference is that I don't think I ever would have been prepared. And so that was the reason why I really felt like it was important for me to jump right into it because I personally felt that if I took a year or two off to go do things, and, it, and that was always a plan and an mm-hmm. option for me, I was already applying at the same time for law school 
to you know open positions. I was looking at potentially working with child protective services. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, and initially, the the concern was, you know, I'm a sociology degree holder. Generally, when you hear about social sciences, you hear that it's really hard to find high-paying jobs or really meaningful jobs. And that was a fear that I think I really internalized. And I thought, okay, if I go to law school, that will give me the opportunity not only to really apply the sociology degree, Mm -hmm. but make sure that it brings me back the return on the investment that I'd already put in, in terms of loans and grant money. Okay, so it was like more of of the monetary investments. It was that, but it was also this idea that the mental and emotional preparedness that I would need to go into law school may never actually come if I took the time off to go do it. But I think it's interesting that you mention money because you are Mm -hmm. going into the public interest and you're going into it knowing that you're not going to make the same return as most of the other students here who decide to go into the private sector. Yeah, and and I think that that kind of shows the fact that I have come to terms with this, right? Mm -hmm. And have also kind of changed and shifted my understanding of what preparedness really is, right? Wow. I think my preparedness now is less so about, you know, do I know how to read these cases properly and do I know how to apply this legal analysis properly? Exactly. Now it means more about do I understand the communities that I want to serve? Do I understand the current issue that they are facing in terms of policy exactly. or law? Exactly. And do I now feel empowered to be able to enter into those spaces to change it? And then, do yeah. I know? <laughs> Not really. I mean, but... I feel way more prepared than I was before. Right. I mean, just knowing, I guess, more structural and systemic issues, knowing the root yep. causes of why we're dealing with a lot of the things we're dealing with now, and then also knowing the infrastructure of the three branches of government, and particularly the court. So when I see something on the news, for example, oh, President Trump is implementing X, Y, and Z, I'm thinking to myself already from a legal perspective, Mm -hmm. can he do this? What is the court? Exactly. What Mm -hmm. is the constitutional analysis behind this? And I love that I can do that now. Even issues in marginalized communities, I feel like I'm way more equipped because I've read policy work on them. I know the infrastructure of the government at this point. I mean, as well as I'm going to know it at this point. And so I feel a lot more prepared to go out and to be an activist than I was before. And I and I think imposter syndrome is a really important term to kind of oh, put into the space goodness. too, right? Yeah. Because as one of, I'm sure many people, probably into their 2L year, 3L year, even after graduation, Today? Now? right? Me? Feel <laughs> imposter syndrome. Yeah. It's a thing that is Well, wait. Con- Mm-hmm. Uh, explain to them what imposter sure, syndrome sure. is. So imposter syndrome is a kind of loosely termed idea or feeling in which one feels unprepared or that they have made it into a space that o- over exceeds the actual, you know, training or experience or competence that that person has. For example, and sim- more simply put, when you get to Harvard, you're looking around like, I don't deserve to be here. I do not. How did I get here? I cheated. No, for real. Grand for real. Like, something. And I think that even looking at how imposter syndrome pervades the African-American community, being in an Ivy League school right. with the arguments now for affirmative action or against affirmative action and such, and thinking like, what have I done to deserve to be in a space? It just makes you feel as though you dub- you've done nothing. You don't deserve to be here. Right. So, Even yeah. when you have done everything that you need to do. And that, yeah, and that's my important. resume was off the charts and I was like looking at <laughs> JK, JK, no, kidding. But you have to understand, like I came from the University of Texas at Austin. I was graduating in the middle of the UT versus Fisher case, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and, and that was a really complex space to be in when we're debating these issues in classes at yeah. UT, where I'm one of only a handful of people of color, oftentimes the only black person in the class. Yeah, exactly. Or you have someone in the back of the classroom, likely white, likely... Privileged. Likely very privileged. Likely unaware of their privilege. And I remember this very vividly perfectly. where someone said, you know, we, we should really have blind admission processes because it's more fair and it means that you know the admissions folks are looking at it and they don't know who you are what you look like or where you come from they just look at your merit and that's really important meritocracy is a lie that was the thing I had to sit through to listen and listen to right and 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 totally felt even in that space right like I had an imposter syndrome like I couldn't speak to defend myself, to defend other people of color, other people that have had the feeling that they were not welcomed or worthy to be in a space like that. And so I think it was really important for me to enter into a space like Harvard Law School at that point as a 20-year-old, you know, barely able to, you know, drive a car or, or live on my own, but really to prove to myself that that was possible and that I knew what I was doing and that I could handle it, obviously with the support of friends and family that were constantly around me, providing me with a sense of comfort. Um, and I think, you know, at, in another segment, we can definitely talk about some of the more specific elements of being in 1L year, about anxiety, about mm-hmm. issues of mental health and self-care. Um, but I think it's important for us to say in this space that imposter syndrome is, is not unique to any one type of person, but is obviously extremely pervasive in communities that have you know, not had access to these spaces historically. So immigrants, people of color, women. Harvard Law School in particular has a very robust history of trying to exclude certain people. We have Policies on the books, articles and statements written by people that taught at Harvard Law School saying that women were not you know, smart enough to come to Harvard Law School, that they would end up diluting the coursework, that black students shouldn't be allowed into the school because they would end up causing more problems than they would benefits. So historically, Harvard Law School has dealt with these issues and law schools in general have dealt with these issues. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we as young black people can enter into these spaces, break down those walls and then take that information and bring it back to our communities. Yeah, it, it reminds me of something I read by Peggy McIntosh about white privilege, and it was in an article called Unpacking the Knapsack. It was really, really great, mm-hmm. and it was talking Classic. about the myth of meritocracy and the myth that dem- democratic choice is equally available to all and how it keeps most people unaware that freedom of confident of action is just for a small number of people. It's not actually for everyone, and that... But one thing that I will say now as a 3L is that I've actually probably overcome imposter syndrome. Mm. Syndrome. I really have. Good, now yeah. that I'm thinking, have you overcome it yet? I don't I don't think I have yet be, because I think that imposter syndrome operates in different contexts, right? So I might have overcome imposter syndrome in a law school context, but say I graduate and I'm studying for the bar, I'm sure imposter syndrome is going to come back there. Or when I start my first job, imposter syndrome is going to be there. It, it's a thing that I feel like you have to manage throughout your career, especially if you're from a minority or marginalized background. You're always going to be challenged in that way, or you're always going to feel that pressure. When I, I don't feel imposter syndrome 
when I'm in a law firm mm. because I have, you know, the name Harvard. Gotcha. And I know that that's, that's true. It's, it sounds bad, but it's, it's almost empowering. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, I am, you know, you go around and you tell all of the other summers where you're from and what school you go to. And when you say Harvard, there's almost the a moment. pause. In, yeah. yeah, there's a oh, pause in the oh, room. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, exactly. Congratulations. Oh, as though wow. It didn't happen like two years ago but, or one yeah. year ago or something. But yeah, that's usually the reaction you get. So you automatically feel as though you're probably more prepared than everyone in the room. Something mm-hmm. interesting, I went to a talk one time about student, I mean, led by students at Harvard, and they asked, do you feel that you're a scholar or you're an activist? And mm-hmm. I said, no, neither. I don't feel like I'm a scholar because I don't feel like I'm scholarly enough. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm an activist because I don't feel as though I'm active enough. However, I said it's interesting looking at from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. If you did not go to Harvard, you would think that Harvard students were the epitome of scholar or mm-hmm. the epitome of activism mm-hmm. in these spaces at least. And so it's and it's interesting to think introspectively how what you think about yourself and what the community thinks about you actually connect, I probably that, disconnect. I think that totally makes sense. The fact that we having imposter syndrome can also be catalyzing imposter syndrome in other people. And so honestly, I think that's part of the reason why I don't like saying where I go to law school, because I don't like even having the opportunity to create a sense of, you know, I'm better than you or I have more credentials than you, because I truly don't think that Harvard is any different in terms of its pedagogy than any other school. Mm -hmm. The only thing that truly sets it apart is the legacy of people that have graduated from here and that have been self-sustaining, right? And and that's a whole other topic. I mean, that's one thing I definitely tell people. I tell them, you know, you're Harvard. Harvard is not you. So don't hide behind that identity. Don't make it a shield. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get into the political. We're going to start with an event that is still very raw, is still very prevalent mm-hmm. in the American imagination, which is the massacre that occurred, the terrorist act that occurred in Las Vegas, in which many people lost their lives. It was now. It is now known as the worst mass shooting in United States history. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that we obviously have to have a conversation about. We want to first hold space for people who have loved ones that have been injured or who have been killed based on this issue. And then we want to actually move forward and talk a little bit more about how we think about this event and what it means. So what happened? The Harvest Music Festival, October the 1st, 64-year-old Stephen Paddock apparently fired from the 32nd floor of his Bay Resort and Casino hotel room. Mandalay Bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He fired about how many rounds did it say? I don't even know if it says. I, yeah. From what I've heard, and there's... You know, there's video of the reaction in the moment, too, but it sounds truly like a battle zone. There is a spray of fire. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently, he just freehandedly just fired into a crowd of people that were at this country music festival. He apparently had 23 guns. and Bombs, yeah, ammunition. Military weapons, basically. And he shot into the crowd for about 10 to 15 minutes, and he killed at least 59 people. This number continues to rise, as well as injured about 500 people. Right. Yeah. And that was an event truly that has shocked the world and has, yeah. and has really shaken the United States to its core, as have all the other mass shootings that mm-hmm. we have experienced in our generation alone. It 
brings us back to the same question of how do we protect our citizens from gun violence, knowing that it implicates rights that people have, but also knowing that the people that are targeted, the people that are harmed, and then also the people that perpetrate these issues have different experiences when dealing with the criminal justice system. Knowing that it implicates the constitutional rights, I think that should be highlighted of people because this individual, he had 23 guns with him in this hotel, but the police recovered another 19 guns from his home. And he also had thousands of rounds of ammo and explosive. So what is your position on gun control? Do we start there? I think it's a really relevant topic. I actually just went to a panel discussion that was held at uh, Harvard Law last week that implicated the issue of guns and gun safety. And they had people that, you know, talked about the fact that guns can be used for self-defense and people need to have access to them. On the other side, you know, there's an advocate for, you know, an abolition of the Second Amendment, for guns to not be, you know, available generally to people. Mm-hmm. And we already have these examples from the international, you know, scale talking about other countries that have experienced gun violence and have then banned guns by civilians and showing how gun violence has been reduced. Um, the thing is, we also have cities like Chicago, where there are very strict gun control laws, yet the murder rate by guns continues to rise. And what would you say about that? I think that that is a corollary for kind of the point that I'm trying to make, which is that it. I don't think I can really give a, a strong answer either way. Mm-hmm. The reason that I feel uncomfortable, you know, going on either side is because I think that access to guns needs to be an issue that is given a more racial and gendered lens to it Mm -hmm. because of who is generally perpetrator, who is generally victim, right? Mm -hmm. We already know about the rash incidences of gun violence brought by the state, right, against people of color, against black people, black Mm -hmm. women, black men, trans black women, right? Mm -hmm. That shows that a gun control regime that doesn't implicate law enforcement itself is not a effective gun control scheme. So I don't think that modern day gun control or the general conception of gun control, which would probably be the removal of civilian arms, Mm -hmm. is significant enough to touch on all of the issues that gun violence actually creates in our world. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, however... I've heard that argument too. And I think that it lends a hand into mental health legislation because we can talk about gun control legislation, but we also should open up for dialogue on how to effectively address individuals Mm. with mental health issues who get access to these guns. And so do you think that, number one, gun control and mental health legislation go hand in hand? Also, what would you say to the people who allege that them being a law-abiding citizen allows them or affords them the right to carry a concealed weapon as opposed to having these laws controlled by more strict legislation? I think that Of course, gun control should be related to mental health, right? My thing is I don't think that that always is going to be the right frame for this discussion Mm -hmm. because it then assumes that anyone that would commit such an atrocious act like we just experienced yesterday or any of the other ones, right, have a record of mental health. And that's always— He had no record. He had not Mm -hmm. only no record of mental health issues. I think they found that his father had a record, but he had no record. He not only had no— 
record of mental health issues, but he also had no criminal record. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to think then about preventative methods when it comes to gun control legislation, because can we actually enact purposefully and meaningful gun control legislation when we wouldn't know by these individuals whether or not they would have been had access to purchase guns because a background check on this man would have probably allowed for him to own a gun. And I think the other point is that not every person that's going to commit this type of, of, of action is going to be mentally ill. And I think that that is already an issue that we deal with when we're trying to prosecute people who have committed acts like this. We already have this, this dude who committed this murder in Charlottesville getting ready for trial. And we're already it's very clear that there's going to be a mental health defense brought up, as there often is Mm -hmm. when the perpetrator is white, when the perpetrator is a white male. Mm -hmm. And so I've always found it very frustrating that we put mental health front and center in some of these conversations because it can take away from the issues of white supremacy, of racism, of Mm anti-blackness. That can be really important to discuss why some of these actions are being carried out. Now, obviously, that isn't relevant at every moment, but it usually should be brought up in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, for sure. I think that when we try to cover it with a shield of unity or mental health legislation, then we're thinking of palliatives as opposed to thinking mm-hmm. of long-term solutions and attacking systemic causes. But also, to your to your question, do I think that all law-abiding citizens should not have guns? I don't know that I can say that because, again, I think that there is a racial and gendered component to it. Mm-hmm. I do think that people who are systemically at risk of violence of certain forms, right, mm-hmm. should have access to weapons to protect themselves. So I do think. I mean, but I yeah. think that it's interesting to go into that because a lot of individuals were saying, well, if you have if the law abiding citizens had access to guns and have guns on them, when these types of things happen, then they would be able to protect themselves from perpetrators as such. Which isn't true, obviously. It, it, yeah, and data has shown that when these types of occurrences happen, they wouldn't have enough time to pull out their weapons. They wouldn't have enough time. And how would you even defend yourself against a man shooting from the 32nd floor mm-hmm. of his hotel, of a hotel, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's an interesting concept because even if you did have the guns that you so-called deserve to have access to, mm-hmm. then you probably wouldn't have been able to use it in an instance that you're attacked without mm-hmm. knowing that you're about to be attacked. And the law-abiding citizen is a very low threshold for access to guns because law-abiding is itself a questionable term or adjective for people Mm -hmm. and it isn't an immutable characteristic it isn't that you will always be law-abiding people that are law-abiding can also break the law in a matter of minutes as did Stephen paddock when he committed this attack exactly Uh looking at the criminal justice system anyone can be deemed non-law-abiding and i think that that has its own racial and gender component to it as well Mm mm-hmm I think another issue with racial, uh, the racialized component of this is whether or not people call this an act of terrorism, Mm -hmm. of domestic terror, of white terror. And I think that the hesitation that we're seeing in terms of social media, but also in terms of the government, in terms Mm -hmm. of the Trump administration, shows that there is a complex component of racism and xenophobia that is related to terrorism. When we think of terrorism, we have a particular body that Mm -hmm. we have envisioned in our minds Mm -hmm. that have been created and constructed by the U.S. government. I mean, yeah, there's been a clear showing of a double standard in response to terrorism because, for example, with Muslims, 
We're calling on the courts to reinstate travel bans and such to Muslim-majority countries, and we're connecting it to prior terrorist events, but then we're not looking at it the same way. We're not calling upon the same extreme legislative measures when we see domestic terrorism happen, and we're not even calling it by its name. And that's because when we think of terror, we aren't thinking of white bodies. Mm -hmm. We aren't thinking of the average Joe who pulls out multiple weapons and stockpiles them to use them against American citizens like themselves. Yeah. Because we have already constructed that, no, they can't be a terrorist for whatever reason we've kind of created. Yeah. But it's so much easier. Exactly. And it's so much easier for us to label brown people terrorists than it is for us to label white people terrorists. And that is what we need to dissect when we're talking about The FBI definitely has a specific criteria in using to classify terrorists in terroristic Mm -hmm. instances. And so that's how that's happening. For example, even Dylan Roof, you know, um, the individual who killed nine black churchgoers in Charlotte, he was not classified as a terrorist by the government. And he was a terrorist. It's clear that it's very important for us to have a conversation on the broadness of the term terrorism Mm -hmm. and what terrorists are. Mm -hmm. Terrorism does not necessarily mean the death of people. It does not mean destruction on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. Terrorism can be committed in so many various ways that sometimes they're unseen. And so it's important for us to realize that people can be terrorized on a daily basis by programs that are being created by government, things like the Muslim ban that can terrorize people, that can leave them stuck in their home countries or stuck in foreign countries because Mm -hmm. they are not allowed to return to the place Mm -hmm. that they seek to be, which is the United States. So it's very important that when we talk about terrorism, we don't just relegate it to these issues of gun violence, which have become much more prevalent in the U.S., but that we think more broadly about it and understand that the brown body that we have envisioned in our minds is not the only, it isn't the the only or the best way to characterize what a terrorist is yeah. or, or what terrorism looks like. Yeah, furthermore, the numbers themselves just don't lie. I mean, empirically, if you look at the data, there has been way more instances in the United States of white extremists taking terroristic measures as opposed to brown bodies coming and doing the same. And so I think that that's something to think about when characterizing what a terrorist is. There's a report that just came out from Congress that said the number of fatalities caused by domestic violent extremists has ranged from 1 to 49 in a given year. Fatalities resulting from attacks by far right-wing violent extremists have exceeded those caused by radical Islamist violent extremists in 10 of the 15 past years and were the same in three of the years since September 12, 2001. So it's very clear that we need to be shifting our focus of who we are trying to target when we're doing anti-terrorism actions and make sure that we are being introspective in terms of thinking about who is in our country already, who is plotting and trying to take down people that are American citizens, people that are you know, undocumented immigrants, people that have a right to live in this space. All right. Let's talk about some of the other issues in the political this week. Okay, so education. Betsy DeVos received a lot of silent backlash when she went to speak at Harvard. Yep, she was here at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government yeah, doing a talk. You know the law school didn't invite her. We ain't invite her. Uh, not that we wouldn't. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. <laughs> Betsy DeVos is the secretary of the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was appointed under President Trump. Mm-hmm. And since her 
you know, selection and confirmation has really been kicking up a firestorm by education advocates who are concerned about the different initiatives that she has been putting into place. For example, the voucher program. Right. What Betsy DeVos is trying to do right now is to remove funding from public schools and circulate that funding in a certain type of voucher program. Vouchers allow parents to use public tax dollars to pay for a private school education. So she's basically privatizing social resources. She wants to give these parents the choice to choose their children's education. All right, so basically the state distributes tax dollars to public schools to educate students, and vouchers change that. So what vouchers do is they take a portion of the money of tax dollars and it gives it to the student rather than the state. And it allows students, it allows the parents to use those dollars to pay tuition at the private schools of their choice. So basically what's happening is that they're siphoning away crucial public school resources and they're using the guise that parents should be allowed to use public tax dollars to pay for the private school education of their children. So they're privatizing social resources under the shield of autonomy. The DOE right now is saying, you guys should have a choice where your kids go to school. And I think that that really runs into this very traditional conservative idea of free market principles, right? The idea that if you have more choice, you have more competition in the market, and your stakeholders have access to those opportunities, then in the end, everything will be better. I think the problem, though, is that what actually happens is they create really problematic incentives and don't provide the stakeholders, those being parents and children, enough information to actually move forward with those choices under a voucher program. I mean, it also provides unfair competition. We know what happens when we get these free market fundamentalism policy changes. We know what happens when we commodify all of these our resources and such. It creates a kind of rat race. And mm-hmm. we're saying that we're privatizing these resources knowing that most people cannot access the private resources that you're claiming that they have the autonomy to. So, for example, we have this voucher program. Right now, more than 300 private schools in Indiana accept vouchers, and the vast are religious schools. And guess what? They're private schools, so they actually can reject students based upon their gender or based upon their religious affiliation. And we don't know what else, maybe political affiliation. So basically, these schools are able to police who can and can't come into their schools regardless of the voucher that they're given. Mm -hmm. And so what does this do other than incentivize discrimination and create an avenue towards discriminatory practice and policy? And again, unfair competition because public schools, unlike private ones, are required to educate everyone who comes in the door, including students with disabilities or limited English skills and including students who actually require more resources. And I think another issue is that it basically will be preying on the apolitical interest of parents. They just want to ensure that their children are getting the best education possible. Mm -hmm. And if you can offer a, a shiny new school to a parent who has the alternative option of taking their child to a public school that has been a little bit dilapidated, that has not received as much funding or as many resources as it needs, of course that parent is going to be thinking about the short term and put their child into the charter school. And I have family members myself who have been dealing with this issue. I had to talk with a charter school principal on the phone from here, talking to, um, to them about my cousin in Houston, just starting high school right now, and she went to a public school, but the question was whether or not she should go to a charter school or not. Mm -hmm. And so I had to talk with the charter school principal on the phone. They were at some, you know, 
recruitment drive mm-hmm. and, and try to ask some of these questions. Yeah. And the principal was very surprised by that, that I even knew about these issues. But it was still concerning to me because that principal couldn't answer all of the questions that I had about how charter schools are going to operate and how they're going to directly benefit the community. Because mm-hmm. that's an issue with the I mean, school choice program as well. So I don't think it's about choice. I think it's more so about the use of federal dollars. And I think that they're putting state flexibility over students. Because imagine a state outsourcing the education of its disadvantaged children to dozens of private entities and asking only for minimal updates on the students' learning and their financial management of the taxpayers' dollars. So that's an issue. Also, the schools that take fewer than 40 vouchers are not required to even show data of their students' learning. So these schools are not even required to hire certified teachers or teach the skills the students need for higher education and the workplace in the 21st century. Another issue with the discriminatory policies is these schools are not even required to admit students based off of certain qualities. And so I think that it's just giving the state too much discretion. I think that it's giving these schools and these private entities too much discretion because they're basically making money off of the backs of these students and we don't know about the return. And they're not accountable they're to not the accountable. community There's at all, no right? no accountability. A lot of charter schools have been parachuting into areas with failing schools and then redeveloping the entire area, creating new parks and creating new activities for the, you know, the entire community, mm-hmm. but aren't thinking about what the community actually wants and needs exactly. and whether or not they'll be able to afford that exactly. in the long run. And so charter schools have some really tricky issues to them. And, and don't get me wrong, I wouldn't say the vouchers and charter schools are wrong on on, on their faith. I know people that have gone to charter schools that have been run by, you know, people of color that have been catering to the black community mm-hmm. and have really cared about the principles I mean, that they course, institute. facially they don't discriminate at all. Right. Just as facially, the school choice, oh, oh I should be able to decide where my mm-hmm. kids go is a great idea. But if we look at it, it has inherent consequences for the community. It's the implementation. Exactly. Right. So I, I do think there's a way to make these work, but it definitely isn't working under Betsy DeVos, who has already shown that she doesn't care care about the protection that the DOE can offer. already shown that she's unqualified to even write a book. Betsy DeVos has already removed protections to women and to trans individuals under Title IX mm-hmm. and has already shown that she's willing to really redevelop our protections that the Department of Education puts out through different guidances, as well as the offices of civil rights that operate through the Department of Education to look at different issues that happen at a more regional level. Yeah. So normally the, the offices of civil rights, I worked at one um, actually as an internship through Harvard you know, normally that, that is the place that you will go if you have a civil rights issue. If a, if a teacher is being racist, you could send a complaint to the Office of Civil Rights and they will adjudicate that issue. But now that Betsy DeVos is in office, she has actually said that she wants to devote the Office of Civil Rights resources towards looking at white people and potentially Asian Americans as well that have been disenfranchised through affirmative action. So that is what she's putting at the forefront. That is what she cares about. And whether or not anyone else will be receiving the resources they truly need under the DOE regime now is to be seen. I need reparations. Where are my reparations? Time for the petty. My favorite part. The petty. All right. What is happening in the petty this week, Brie? All right, so O.J. Simpson, our dear brother, has been freed from prison. In the middle of the night, what happened? He's been there for nine years now. Yeah. God bless. You know, I'm. <laughs> I'm just. I don't even know how to feel about this one. I just remember hearing uh, he might OJ be Simpson removed. O.J. Simpson killed his wife, and I'm gonna say it. Okay, I'm uh, gonna say it. All right. O.J. <laughs> Stop. I'm not. O.J. Simpson killed his wife. He did. 
but for what I think is a mistrial. He would have been properly sentenced at a criminal level other than just being found guilty on a cri- on a civil standpoint. Mm. Uh, yeah, he killed his wife. And I feel like he deserves to be in prison. So, well, he wasn't in prison for that. He was in prison for a I know robbery, he was in, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, kind of catapulted into that. Right. He's a felon, you know. But yeah, he was trying to get his memorabilia back from a robber, and he got caught, and they threw him in jail because they knew that he had committed the murder of his wife oh. and her friend. I don't know if that's legally what they said, but I'm sure that I people mean, had that it in the back the of their mind. I the underlying issue. He definitely killed his wife. Everyone's pissed off about that. He capitalized off the situation, exploiting the family of both the wife and the friend that he killed. He wrote a book talking about some if I did it, like, mm. no. It was disrespectful. O.J. Simpson killed his wife, and he should have been left in jail. Oh, oh, I didn't Second get... wife, by the way, because he had been married to his high school sweetheart before starting a relationship with this other woman. But, the, you know, that's neither here nor there. I didn't get to watch American Crime Story or whichever show I didn't watch it either. That, I just read about it. I read about it. the case. Because on that show, they actually did a... From what I heard, it was a really great reenactment of I everything that happened. Well. Um, but I was really young when, like, the initial O.J trial happened so i don't honestly know very much about it so i'm not gonna say whether or not he killed anybody he totally did but he definitely robbed somebody um and was arrested and charged for for that and was ultimately released for that so it is what it is on that regard here's hoping that he doesn't come back into the spotlight and actually just you know goes home and, and I mean, takes a break. I mean, he has, like, really bad arthritis. So I'm not saying He's that, 70 years old. Yeah, he's so really old. So it's time for him to go and take a nap. Talking, like, literally. Go home. Literally, time to go take a nap. All right, so what else are we talking about on the petty? Tom Price resigns as health secretary. Goodbye. <laughs> who, who, like... How many people? Yeah, I mean, I fired. mean, everyone's in and out of this administration, everyone's but that's leaving. neither here nor there. Why did Tom Price resign? That's what I'm thinking is funny. So Tom Price resigned as a result of a mini scandal, because it's mini compared to everything else we're dealing mm-hmm. with here, based on him taking and chartering all of these different private jets to go to different events, totaling... Not just him, but his wife and his his posse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So our sister Betsy, she was on those private military jets taking 95-minute flights worth over $300,000. They were using tax dollars, the the coins. Was that champagne worth it, you think? No. Was that Dom Perignon they be- <laughs> worth it? <laughs> I mean, were they were this? using tax dollars like it was flat <laughs> Okay. And he literally came back and said, all right, I'm sorry, I'll pay you $51,000. Yeah, no, but some people are justifying it and uh, like they always do and bringing up how many people took flights during the Obama administration, blah, blah, blah. You know, we always get the relative comparisons when it comes to wrongdoings in the Trump administration. Some people are trying to say, oh, that people were taking flights like this in the Obama administration, but... I don't. I think that the difference is these ones were not for classified issues. He was taking flights to meetings. Like he was basically taking vacation flights. He knew from the very beginning <laughs> he couldn't afford know? this, right? We don't know what the Trump admins are being paid. Well, we know who isn't getting paid. <laughs> well, now we know. <laughs> Rest in peace, Tom Price. R.I.P. Tom Price and your career, and Betty, Betsy too. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the Amber Rose Slut Walk, which just occurred this past weekend in, what, New York? 
Oh, does she do it in L.A.? Yeah, it was in downtown L.A. LA. Yeah. And so this time we had Amber Rose come out. This time she was Captain (laughs) Save-A-Ho. That was her outfit. (laughs) Interesting. She went with her beau, 21 Savage, who also (laughs) marched in the parade and carried a sign. I'm a ho too, right? Right. And so people have been reading that as, oh, now the term slut and and, and being a ho is now degendered. And now 21 Savage is a feminist, (sighs) which is like, oh, my God. Are they saying the word feminist is degendered as well at this point? Jesus Christ. I my issue with the slut walk is I think that I think that it's interesting that they're reclaiming the word slut, which is coined to describe women who have various sexual partners. Okay, Mm -hmm. I understand that. You're reclaiming it. You're taking you're attempting to take away the derogatory connotation and you're shedding light on the fact that women should be able to have as many partners as they want to without being shamed in society. Great. However, are Mm. we taking away what we should be taking away from this movement. And in that sense, are we using that critique to actually empower and then better the institution as we treat women? Or are we just shedding light on it? And I think that shedding light on it eventually leads to exploiting it, Mm. which I don't agree with. Don't exploit... I'm not, and I don't want to say Amber Rose is doing this. I really don't know her intentions. And I, I feel like she thinks that this is very empowering to women, but I think that also it's becoming something that's more glamorized. Mm. And I don't think that we need to be glamorizing this slur. I think that it needs to be criticized for what it is, a slur. Okay, we can reclaim it. And then what? And then how are we helping the feminist objectives? Mm. Well, I mean, absolutely, youth and re- reclamation of the term is within the purview of people who are affected by by the use of the term and who are targeted as victims of of framing of being hypersexualized. Mm-hmm. Often, which is a thing that men create in the first place. Yeah. Um, so all of these constructed terms are about who should have sex, who you know, how much sex is too much. Mm-hmm. All of these standards that are put on women but are not applied to men. And so that's why I think it's really interesting exactly. that people are seeing 21 Savage now holding up the sign saying, I'm a ho too, and like thinking that now this has established that 21 Savage cares about women when like, is his, his, music. is his music going to change? Exactly. Is he going to stop referring to women in derogatory ways as we've already seen through his music, right? Exactly. Um, and I mean, we can glamorize and we can use a lot of these careers as a way to shed light again on these situations. But then what about change? Mm-hmm. Even And I know I listened to a podcast featuring Amber Rose talking about her former career and such and how empowered she felt being a stripper. And that's understandable. Great. Like, let's take negative connotations from economic segues, I suppose. Free sex work, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. But I think that we should also show how mentally and physically damaging it is to objectify women in ways that these careers actually do. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we're shedding enough light on that. I have a daughter. I don't want I want her to recognize that these slurs like slut and such are bad. Mm -hmm. I want her to recognize and I want her to recognize that no man should call her that. However, I don't want her to take that term and internalize it and then try to project it as though it's good. I don't Mm -hmm. want her to say, oh, great. I'm a slut. Like and and like Amber Rose says, I'm a certified slut. Okay, interesting that you say that. Mm -hmm. Great. But how does that help women that this term is actually harming other than reclaiming it, I guess I'm not understanding. And, I, and that's my problem with the slut walk. I just don't understand it. And mm-hmm. I don't think that it really, I think that it more so exploits rather than aids the movement towards real feminism and equality. 
We're going to end up real quick talking about the newly betrothed. <laughs> Milo, betrothed. Milo, oh my Milo God. If you Milo. don't know who Milo is, good. Good. That's great. great. Milo I, I, mean, I didn't know who he was before this episode. I mean, before I started studying up on material for this episode. It's excellent. Okay. It's interesting. He's an interesting character. He's garbage. Apparently, he is. A transphobe, homophobic, homophobic uh, albeit being gay. <laughs> he's um, an open homosexual racist. who happens to also... Apparently he's a paradox. Maybe, right? He's an enigma. He have a, he's a, a garbage can. Kim hates him. Here's the news. Milo Yiannopoulos... <laughs> Kim hates him? <laughs> Milo Yiannopoulos is married to a black man. This past week, we got some Instagram photos out of him. All of them very nondescript, showing a black dude that he just married. None of the images have the photos of the face of the black man because he knows, and we know, and we know that it wasn't going to fly if we knew who he was and we could find him. I know him. we will find his Twitter and his Instagram. It's really interesting. I don't know if you saw this picture, but the actual image of you know the marriage you see. Milo holding this guy's hand and the guy's back is facing you, right? He's wearing this white blazer and on the back of the blazer said, love is blind, I think, which is a really weird thing to put here, but I guess it's pretty apt because of, I guess you have to be really ignorant of everything that Milo has ever said in the public sphere to truly forget or not acknowledge that this is a terrible person that you probably shouldn't be marrying. Milo Yiannopoulos was removed from Twitter and banned based on comments that he made to many different people, many of them transphobic, many of them racist, even misogynist. I I don't think anyone can forget when he launched an attack against Leslie Jones, who is one of the nicest people probably in the world, one of the most funny people that we have in comedy today, who had done nothing but praise people and support people. Yet he found that it was cool to attack her and call her some of the most derogatory terms based on the fact that she was going to be in Ghostbusters. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, he's definitely disgusting. I think that he said something along the lines of he likes black men in the bedroom, but he likes white straight men in the employment space, <laughs> and then he likes to drink with girls. Ah. And at least he didn't assign a race to the kind All of girls of he things. likes to drink with. But that's what he's, uh, he, he's a very problematic and controversial voice, and I think that he's clearly adding to the problem of... Yeah. Of America? If you haven't seen Get Out, you have to watch Get Out and look at this picture because it literally looks like they didn't want the guy to catch the camera lens or to catch the flash off of the lens or else it would have been like a Get Out moment where he like freaks out and comes out of the sunken place and is like, I'm freed and I'm liberated. That's hilarious. I truly believe Milo was sitting over there with some tea and swirling and tapping the cup. He was tapping his cup. He was tapping his cup. Think. (laughs) all right y'all all right this has been another episode of petty politics thanks so much for listening and the politics but more so the petty because we're very petty because we put petty in everything as as always we're on itunes be you know sure to go check us out subscribe comment like subscribe give us suggestions let us know know what to talk about and then also follow us on social media yes so follow us at harvard bolsa at Harvard BLSA. Thank you so much. Alrighty, y'all. Until, until next, next time. time. Bye.